A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As the Conservatives face electoral oblivion in 2024, could we see a repeat of the 1997 or perhaps even 1906 landslide general elections? To discuss, I'm joined by the historian and Telegraph columnist Simon Heffer. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you, Stephen. Will we see a repeat of the 1997 Tony Blair landslide this year? If I knew the answer to that, I'd be writing the horoscope column, which is, uh, I think, much better paid than doing political work. Uh, Things are looking bad for the Conservative Party. There's a long way to go, though. Uh, The election may not be until November. Uh, We're only in January. So it's quite possible that uh, there will be a budget that puts money into people's pockets, that inflation keeps going down, that uh, unemployment doesn't go up, uh, that something miraculous happens to the housing market and to the efficiency of our public services. And people have very relatively short memories sometimes, and that the difficulties of the last few years will be put behind the Conservative Party. The trouble is the Conservative Party has had the two worst prime ministers in British history, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, one dis- leaving office in disgrace and leaving the House of Commons in disgrace the other utterly incompetent. And those are very heavy crosses for a political party to bear. The one thing I think that militates against the the, uh, Labour Party having a massive victory, a landslide victory, is that Keir Starmer isn't Tony Blair. I mean, I knew Tony Blair, I know Tony Blair. And Tony Blair is an immensely impressive man, whatever you think about his politics. Uh, he's just one of the most brilliant politicians I think I've ever met. Keir Starmer is not in that category. He's a slightly grey man. I don't dispute he's done well in mucking out the uh, Augean stables of the Labour Party after Corbyn, you know, the reputation for anti-Semitism, the extreme leftism. But there are other aspects of the Labour Party which he hasn't addressed. I mean, Sadiq Khan has been a catastrophically bad mayor of London which is now a crime-ridden place where he has to bribe the tube drivers to keep the underground going. Um, We've seen Mark Drakeford in Wales recently um, reduce Wales to a place where if you want to have a hospital appointment, you have to run across the border to England. Um, And these things will, if the Conservative Party start campaigning properly, um, have to be justified by the Labour Party or defended by the Labour Party. Also, I don't buy this argument that the SNP are going to be wiped out in Scotland by Labour. I think the SNP has a very tribal vote. I think a lot of people who support the SNP do so because they hate the Union. They particularly hate the English and hate the idea of England being the boss in the Union because we have the money and we have the the weight of population. And I think Labour might struggle more than it imagines uh, even though the SNP have had a disastrous couple of years with the corruption and the this missing £600,000 and the debacle of Sturgeon's um, last few months as, as leader and the total ineffectualness of, the, of uh, Hamza Yusuf, who's utterly useless. Um, 
I think nonetheless, Labour will struggle to win perhaps more than 15 or 20 seats in Scotland, because in the end, there's a really hardcore SNP vote. So they, what, had 205 seats, I think, or something at the last election? They've got to win 120 seats or so to have a majority of one. They may well do that. They're going to win 160, 170 seats they don't have at the moment. I don't think so. And that's why I think they won't get a landslide. Now, of course, there are examples from history, perhaps, where a large majority from one party is overturned to a large majority for another party. Can you talk a bit about perhaps that one historical... Was, was that an example? Was that sort of a rarity? The one 20th century, I should have... <laughs> 19th and 20th century example was... Um, Lord Salisbury won um, a majority of over 130 for the Tories. At the Kharki election of 1900, it was just after the relief of Mafeking and everybody was thinking we're going to win the Boer War, um, in which we did disastrously. By the way, we should have won the Boer War in weeks and it took us three years. Um, and Salisbury stood down after the coronation of Edward VII uh, and bequeathed that great majority to his nephew, Arthur Balfour, uh, and there were cries of nepotism that Balfour got the job. This is where the phrase Bob's your uncle comes from. Uh, but um, Balfour's, Balfour was a highly intelligent man. He was a trained philosopher. And I suppose rather as a handicap to a politician, he could therefore see both sides of every story or both sides of every argument and often found it hard to decide which side of the argument he was on. He was a bit of a flanner. He was a society figure. Many of his best friends were liberals. Uh, and there was a big row going on in the Conservative Party after 1903 about free trade. Uh, we were a free trading country, but Joe Chamberlain, who had been colonial secretary under Salisbury, um, wanted this thing called imperial preference, where there was um, goods produced in and exported and Im imported around the British Empire, carried no duties, and all other goods coming in and out did. And uh, quite a lot of the Tory party was taken in by Chamberlain and thought that was a good idea. And quite a lot of them weren't. And it caused enormous divisions. And Balfour not only couldn't heal the divisions, but he couldn't understand which side he was on. And so by late 1905, he resigned. He didn't call an election. He said, well, I can't do this anymore. I've had enough. In those days, parliaments lasted for seven years. And he was in uh, about halfway through the sixth year. So there was another 18 months that could have gone. And he handed over to the Liberals, Henry Campbell Bannerman, and they won a majority, I think, over 200. Uh, and so it was a massive seesaw. And it was a tribute to a Conservative Party that had not just lost its way, but had a leader who was incapable of leading. And I don't think Sunak, again, is quite in that category yet. I think Sunak does have a rough idea of where he wants to go. Um, but it is, there was a parallel, I think, again, with 1997. John Major had had the humiliation of Black Wednesday. I mean, I was a very active political commentator throughout those years. I remember writing after Black Wednesday that Major had lost the next election whenever it came uh, because people would never forgive him. They would never forgive him for the national humiliation of being kicked out of an international monetary system that he put pressure on Thatcher when he was chancellor to enter, uh, and he should never have done that. And he didn't take any responsibility. Um, I think many people in 1997, although memories are short in politics, 
remembered Norman Lamont getting up when he resigned in May 1993 as Chancellor. And Norman saying that he, he went to see Major on Black Wednesday and said, well, maybe we should resign. And Major said to him, well, I can't see any reason why I should resign and I can't see any reason why you should either. Of course, Lamont was his air raid shelter, as it's famously said at the time. And if Lamont had gone uh, then, in the heat of Black Wednesday, Major would probably not have survived. But people saw Major as a, as a weak figure who was being bossed around by powerful political heavyweights in his cabinet, such as Douglas Hurd, such as Ken Clark, such as Michael Heseltine, who were all very pro-Europe, very pro the, uh, the exchange rate mechanism. And although by the... And what was unusual about 1997 was the economy was going really well by 1997 because the Conservative Party had followed proper economic policies of allowing the currency to find its own level and the currency after an initial collapse and we left the uh, ERM I think it went down from 295 to the to the mark um, or, or two marks 95 down to 240 um, we suddenly you know everything built up again and we were doing um, extremely well but we still lost because people looked at the Tory party and said you don't know where you're going you don't know how to lead you're incompetent and Sunak at the moment I think doesn't radiate incompetence. He radiates caution. We saw that over the Rwanda bill. He radiates caution, and he's still trying to unpick the poisonous legacy that he had. He's also not dishonest in the way that Johnson was, dishonest about almost everything. And so he's, those are great strengths for him. It's whether he's got the dynamism and the vision to build on them, and that's what's lacking at the moment. But I don't think, in other respects, it's really comparable with 1997. But the Tories were in power for 18 years before 97, and they've obviously uh, been in government, whether with the Lib Dems or whatever, but for around 13, 14 years. So perhaps people are, are simply sick of the Conservative Party, sick of the drama. And also, you talk about splits around Europe as well in the 90s. Um, the Conservative Party doesn't exactly seem united today, particularly when it comes to issues of of immigration. We talked about the Rwanda bill very briefly there. Um, the, the Conservative Party now seems to be a very, very broad church where on one side you've got these very liberal, socially liberal Tories, the kind of Cameronites, and then the other, other side you've got the Suella Braveman, more conservative right-wing kind of group. And the party does seem bitterly divided. So do you think those two things are also sort of parallels with the 90s? I mean, certainly the Conservative Party does look for things to fight over among itself, and it's done so really since the 1950s, because before it was Europe, it was about east of Suez. Uh, it was about us trying to cling on to some vestige of, of being an imperial power long after we'd lost our empire. Then it became Europe, uh, and now they're looking for other things to fight about, and immigration's come along. It reminds me rather of the American cinema in the 1990s, you know, because up until the fall of Gorbachev, um, a lot of America, the common enemy for America uh, had been um, the, the Soviet bloc and communism. And when communism ceased to be an issue, um, they were rather at a loss. The, the film industry says, well, hang on, we're a nation that's defined by our, our identity is about having a common enemy, and we haven't got one. And so suddenly throughout the 90s, 
you have all these films about aliens landing and space invaders and people in Martians in flying saucers. They always seem to end in, land, in, land in either Texas or Manhattan, which is quite interesting. Perhaps they were told that they'll get the highest quality of life there. And then, of course, you know, the horrors of 9-11 take place, and suddenly America's got a common enemy again, doesn't have to invent an enemy, and you have years of films about wicked um, Islamic terrorists killing people. And the Tory party is very like America in that regard. It's got to have an, an enemy. And you see, what, what's so obvious for Sunak to do now is to say, well, the Labour Party are, are our enemy. We, we should be fighting them. And instead, they don't campaign. Um, and they will end up losing a lot of seats. I, say, I don't think they can lose enough to give Labour a landslide. But they, will, they can easily lose enough to put Labour in government. And they will do that because they haven't gripped the British people and said, look, here are some really bad things these people are going to do, and here are some really good things that we're going to do. That's all it's about. I think there are a few issues with that argument, and just to uh, perhaps you could comment on, on, on my response. So first of all, the difference between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party at the moment to many people seems negligible, um, you know, particularly when it comes to issues of taxation, immigration, uh, spending, all of these things, it looks like we've had a Labour government for the last 13 years anyway, if you if you judge them on that record. Also, Keir Starmer doesn't seem particularly scary. And I think that to many voters is, you know, he, he may not be Tony Blair, but he's certainly not Jeremy Corbyn. No. And I think that's sort of quite an appeal for many people who... He's Mr. Attlee, actually. That's he's, interesting. He's as unscary as Clever Attlee was in 1945. So, so they're going into this election, and, and also I think the third point I was going to make was that the Conservatives themselves are very demoralised. I think they look at what they've done over the last 13 years and they think, God, what happened? Uh, you know, that many Conservative activists, um, councillors, even MPs, I've spoken to various people who, who just think, we have really, really royally screwed this up, and they don't have the heart in it for them to sort of fight this election. Yeah, I mean, one of the great problems for the Tory party since really Mrs Thatcher went has been the calibre of their members of parliament and the calibre of their uh, ministries. And, I mean, Dave Cameron, who I was never a great admirer of, and the comments why he's been brought back as foreign secretary, um, made a reasonable fist of being prime minister for six years by comparison with what's come afterwards. I say, Theresa May couldn't take a decision. Um... Boris Johnson couldn't tell the truth, and Liz Truss didn't have a clue how to govern. Uh, you know, I mean, Liz Truss, who was always going on about her belief in markets and her adoration of market economics, it never occurred to her what the markets would do if she got her chancellor to get up and say, well, we're going to cut taxes by 46 billion, and we shan't tell you where the money's coming from. He's not yet. And she wondered why the market's imploded. And will announce a huge energy subsidy. Oh, yes, and allowed a huge energy subsidy at the same time. So they, they have been incompetent. I mean, the Johnson cabinet, I think, I talked to other historians about this, we, you know, we generally agreed it was the worst cabinet in history. I mean, I'm sorry, a cabinet that's got Nadine Dorries in it is, is not one that can be taken seriously. And I mean, some of the other people in there were just clowns. Uh, and they were there because they, they did what Johnson wanted them to do. They just obeyed orders. It does seem the party has drifted ideologically. I mean, there's no, there's no purpose anymore. There's no ideology to the Conservative Party at the moment. Other than power. And even that's, what's the point now, basically? I mean, soon enough to be fair to him, OK, look, nobody forced him to become Prime Minister. That was a choice. 
and he is partly responsible for some of the mess that's going on because he was Chancellor of the Exchequer for several years before he became Prime Minister. So, um, you know, he's, he had a dog in that fight and he's partly responsible. Uh, but he has had a hell of a job on his hands trying to steady the ship because, you know, you think back to October, um, you know, 2022 when Liz Trust failed to outlast the lettuce in the fridge and um, it was in a state of utter chaos. I mean, sadly, I'm old enough to remember when Mrs. Thatcher succeeded Ted Heath in 1975, and the Tories had lost two elections the previous year, and um, the Tory party was in a mess, but it was a controlled mess. We appear to have had an uncontrolled mess for most of the last five years. And Sunak does appear to have restored some sort of order. You know, we had the great threat so that he's going to have to resign and the party's going to fall to pieces over Rwanda. Well, it didn't. Um, there are people who are talking it up because I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people in our trade of journalism have got a bit overexcited. But, um, you know, things, things are not going well, but they do need to start campaigning. You know, the Labour Party is promising to do things that are going to be really bad for the way this country operates. I mean, one example which might seem a minority cause is this whole question of putting VAT on school fees. Okay, you so say that just affects a few rich people. It doesn't. A lot of people who are not rich, many of whom will be watching this video and many of whom read our newspaper, make huge sacrifices to send their children or their grandchildren to private schools. And they do that not because they're snobs, but because they know how, in some parts of the country, the state schools are dreadful. And they don't want to inflict that on their children or grandchildren, and they're quite right to do that. If you suddenly put VAT on school fees, and I wrote a piece of the Telegraph about this quite recently, head teachers in the private sector say that they could lose between a third and a half of their pupils because the families simply can't afford that other 20%. And indeed, they'll also lose their rates exemption. So that's going to cost, you, know, you could end up with fees going up 25, possibly even 30%. And they're just going to lose lots of parents. Those children have to be educated somewhere. Now, Starmer and his friends say, well, you know, all the extra money we're going to rake in from VAT, we're going to spend building schools and hiring teachers. But there'll be so few people paying that extra VAT, they won't be raking it in. And meanwhile, you'll have hundreds of thousands of children turning up at schools who haven't got places for them who haven't got the physical buildings in which to teach them, haven't got the teachers to teach them. And so every head teacher I've spoken to about this has said, if they're going to do it, they're going to have to phase it in over 10 years because otherwise the state system collapses. It's like them saying, well, if we let's abolish private medicine because that's inequitous. Well, then you'd have hospitals collapsing. And they, they say this stuff, they've always got to throw a bone to the left. I mean, Tony Blair's bone he threw to the left after 1997 was abolishing fox hunting, um, which was a self-inflicted wound because um, a lot of people who worked for hunts, uh, who were working class people, who may have voted Labour, lost their jobs um, or, were, or were put on reduced um, time. And so they, they're always looking for things that um, strike a sort of Marxist notion, a class war that they're not actually fighting. Uh, and it always damages their own people. And it will, you know, why aren't the Conservative parties campaigning about this? Well, again, I put it to you that the difference between those two parties, you talk about one specific issue, and I think, you know, it's a very legitimate point to make. And also, there are lots of other things. You could talk about the Race Equality Act that Labour want to put in place, which yeah. seems very dangerous, and, yeah. and they're spending on green things and whatever. Sure. 
But at the same time, you, when you look at the Conservative Party, you think net zero, you think record illegal and legal immigration, record tax burden, huge government spending, uh, including on welfare and things like that, and the debt has massively increased and the economy isn't doing very well. So all of these things I would associate normally with, with the Labour Party and also an obsession with equality and, you know, yeah, t- yeah. T- to a large extent, lots of Conservative MPs are socially liberal and left-wing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it just yeah. seems like the distinction isn't there to me. I'll take you to just one thing you've said, Stephen, yeah. which is about the economy not doing very well. Our economy is doing a damn sight better than most European economies, particularly the German economy. Uh, and we are very, very fortunate indeed that we didn't ever go into the euro. Um, because who knows, you know, we, we left the EU, but we might not have left the euro, in the same way that a lot of countries who aren't part of America use the dollar. So that was a, a great benefit to us. And, you know, I've read some of our colleagues whom I've respected enormously over the last two years saying, oh, the recession's coming, it's going to be awful. There is no recession. There isn't going to be a recession. Let's forget that. I mean, there might be a recession if the Labour Party win an election later in this year and they make a mess of the economy. But everything else you said, I'm afraid, is true. And um, I attribute a lot of it to the failure to reform the civil service. Tony Blair, when he became prime minister, highly politicised the civil service. Um, People who had worked as press officers, special advisors, um, uh, were put into mainstream civil service jobs. And they shouldn't have been there. And the civil service now controls weak ministers. Why, we, why have we not operated our border controls properly? Because the Home Office is full of civil servants who laughed at Priti Patel, laughed at Suella Braverman, they're probably laughing at James Cleverly now about it. Um, they don't want to implement our border controls. I think you're right to an extent. I actually wrote a piece for Sunday Telegraph about this last weekend about the, inside the Home Office and talking about some of the civil servants there. Yeah. And I had a lot of discussions with people yeah. who worked there and people who previously worked yeah. there. And I think um, particularly on illegal migration, you're right. But let's not abdicate the responsibility from Conservative ministers and Prime oh, Ministers really? over the last decade or so who, particularly on that issue of immigration, yeah. they have refused to make the tough choices that they needed to make in order to cut the numbers. Yeah. David Cameron... Uh, Theresa May, uh, yeah. Boris Johnson in particular, and Liz Truss, I think all of them share responsibility as well. And again, it comes to that, back to that point of the separation between Tony Blair's party and David Cameron's new Conservative reform party is, 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 is not very significant. Yes, and you know, I, I'm as guilty of, uh, of this as anybody. We focus on the disaster of the Johnson years. You know, he's Prime Minister for three years, just about the fact that he couldn't tell the truth. But also, he did nothing to capitalise on Brexit. I I was and remain a great believer in Brexit because I believe in sovereignty and I believe in democracy. And the European Union, uh, in the way that we were members of the European Union, was an anti-democratic force in this country, and that's why I disapproved of it. But I also assume that once we left the EU, the regulatory freedom that would give us would enable us to thrive as a country. And Johnson, in three years, did absolutely nothing. We also managed to spend £500 billion on the pandemic in a way that I think was catastrophically bad. And it was because Johnson just took the line of least resistance against everybody. I'm not saying he should have ignored scientific experts, but there were ways of handling the pandemic. We should not have closed the country down in the way that we did on two occasions, uh, you know, in the spring and early summer of 2020 and throughout the winter of 2020-2021. It was insane. We should have said to people, if you're vulnerable, if you're of a certain age, certain health conditions and look after yourself don't go out if you're young and fit 
get on with it. If you get COVID, you get COVID, particularly once the vaccinations came in. And, you know, if we'd done this in 1918, when we had Spanish flu, we'd have lost the Great War because all the munitions factories would have closed. You know, the first wave of flu attacked at the beginning of June 1918, when we were fighting the great German offensive on the Western Front. And if we'd said to everybody then, particularly to women working in munitions factories and uh, other essential war industries, uh, if you get a nasty bout of flu, stay at home. And people were dropping dead in the street from Spanish flu. It was far more virulent and dangerous than COVID was. Um, we'd have lost. And we, uh, we took a really easy way out at the time, which has now beggared my children um, when I get them, my grandchildren, and this is not on. Your generation, I mean, you're 30 odd years younger than me, your generation is going to really pay for the, for the mistakes that my generation has made. I don't feel good about that at all. And um, that's something that Johnson, I think, was egged on in, you know, by the opposition. You know, he thought, well, he had Nicola Sturgeon up in Scotland and, and Drakeford in Wales, both uh, trying to outbid each other on how far they could you know, become even more nanny statish than was going on in Westminster. And I think Johnson just got incredibly nervous, particularly actually after Cummings walked out. I mean, Cummings clearly had enough of him, and who can blame him, and walked out. And I mean, that last, the last 18 months of Johnson's administration was utter chaos. I mean, the first 18 months weren't that good, but the last 18 months were a debacle. And one thing that and you know, as a conservative voter myself, I ask myself this question all the time. How did it happen? Why did the Conservative Party get into a state where, I mean, I can see why they elected Cameron in 2005, and Cameron did last for uh, nearly 11 years as leader of the Conservative Party. But why did they choose Theresa May when everybody knew she couldn't make her mind up about anything and was terrified of taking a position on anything? Why did they elect Johnson when everybody knew he was unreliable, that he was a pathological liar? Why did they elect Liz Truss when she had made a mess of every government job that she'd done? What were they expecting? And the, you know, if the British public turn on the Conservative Party and say, you have shown, not just in your, ex in your uh, invention of policy and your execution of policy, but also in your judgment about individual politicians and their character and the nature of leadership, you have shown again and again that you're utterly hopeless. Why would you vote for them? And the only answer is because they might not be quite as awful as the Labour Party. Well, they're not even proving that at the moment. Will you be voting for them this year? I will. Um, I have got a Member of Parliament I admire enormously, uh, Kemi Badenoch, and uh, I wish to support her. I think she is one of the most impressive ministers in, in the government, if not the most impressive minister in the government. I'm probably ending her career by saying this. But she is absolutely first-rate, uh, and uh, I want her to be returned to Parliament, and I want to, I, I'd be very proud of voting for her. Um, if I had <laughs> some rather dodgy people who have not distinguished themselves in the last few years, I'd think very long and hard before going out and voting. You talked about the differences between Sunak and Johnson in terms of character, and I just want to ask about the general uh, sort of atmosphere of Britain around morality and decency in politicians. Do you think British people care anymore whether their politicians are moral or decent people um, in a way that perhaps in the past they would have done? I think they do care very strongly. And I think one of the many reasons for the outpouring of genuine grief 
when the late Queen died was they realized, we realized, I realized how lucky we were to have a head of state like that when you see the political class that we're confronted with at the moment. And I think one reason why the king has got off to such a good start as king, when everybody said, oh, he won't be as good as his mother, is every time he appears in public, every time he opens his mouth, he shows what a genuine leader he is, what a, what a genuine representative of all his people he is. And I think that is underlined by the loathing that so many people have for the political class. And I really regret that loathing because I am a Democrat. I don't want to be ruled by an autocracy. And I've got friends who are members of parliament who really do work very hard and try very hard. And I know talking to some of them, the abominable, I mean, almost pornographic abuse they get on social media, um, which is despicable. And I wouldn't put up with it. It just drives people out. But unfortunately, there are a few people who are not very bright, who are toadyingly ambitious, who will do anything to get a job, uh, to, you know, to get their bottoms on the consolidated fund, as the phrase used to go. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think it does disgust people. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Does Sunak remind you of any previous Conservative Party leader or Prime Minister in terms of his character? I mean, perhaps Baldwin comes to mind, Macmillan. Um, are there any other sort of boring but decent people uh, who come to mind, who are, com- who are quite competent. But he, I mean, Sunak's a bit of a technocrat as well. And I think one criticism for Sunak is, is, is that he's not very good at politics. He doesn't really get politics. And as you say, he sort of delayed various decisions around Rwanda and things as well. That's a very interesting question. I mean, I certainly wouldn't insult. Um, I wouldn't insult Sunak by comparing him with Macmillan, who was a complete charlatan. Um, I don't know, he's almost Alec Hume, I suppose in some ways, you know, meaning very well. I think Sunak does mean well. You know, I, I don't wake up in the morning with that sense of sort of grief and doom I did when Johnson was Prime Minister, thinking, oh my God, I am represented internationally by a clown like that. I think Sunak is a really decent man who really means well for this country. I think you have a, you are absolutely right to say he's not a politician, or should we say, he's not sufficiently political. And this goes back to my point about campaigning. If you want to win a general election, you've got to start campaigning. You've got to look at your strengths, such as they are, and your opponent's weaknesses. And you've got to terrify the people. You know, I was, I've just written a chapter for a book on election campaigns, and I wrote the chapter on 1979. And I remember it vividly, I was 18. It was my first time I was going out to vote. And um, I've I've been back looking at footage of um, uh, interviews, PPBs. The quality of argument then, the quality of leadership. I mean, everybody writes off Callaghan as a dead loss. I mean, Callaghan wasn't a great prime minister. He did allow himself to be hijacked by the trade unions and the winter of discontent. But he was very good at appearing to be in charge even when things were going wrong. 
And Mrs. Thatcher, as leader of the opposition, was devastating. There's a part of political broadcast, which is on YouTube, that she gave on the 17th of January, 1979, where she says to Callaghan, look, why don't you and I just make a common pact against the trade unions? Because this can't go on. And she is so utterly in, in charge. And she is speaking for Britain. Because I remember at the time, everybody, more or less, apart from a few militant trade unionists, a few Marxists who wanted to overthrow the, the, the constitutional order of this country, were disgusted with the way that schools were closing, the dead weren't being buried, all those cliches about the winter of discontent. They're all true. I was there. It was horrible. And it snowed a lot as well. Uh, and, you know, the, we had Callaghan putting up the best fight he could. But Mrs. Thatcher, just absolutely relentless in her patriotism, her vision and her decency, saying, our people don't deserve this. Our people deserve better. And this is what we're, here are the practical things we can do to stop it, which is you do not allow the trade unions to strike in this way. You don't allow flying pickets. You, you don't allow the clothes shop. You allow a bit of liberty in the, in the workplace. And you, you stop the trade unions being over mighty subjects. It wasn't just rhetoric. She had a plan. Now, I want to hear Sunak's plans. Maybe we'll start getting them in the budget. The budget's still another two months away. Who knows? Uh, I'd rather like them to start fighting now. Um, you know, the, the National Health Service, we keep being told, isn't working. There's doctor's strikes. One reason the health service isn't working, I believe there are 15,000 elderly people in NHS beds who shouldn't be there. Because David Cameron, given the Dilmot report on social care in 2011, did nothing about it. He just threw it into the long grass and it's still there. You know, we've got an aging population that needs to be looked after with a, a compassionate society. This could have been addressed 12, 13 years ago. It hasn't been addressed at all. And one you know, public service by public service, we're failing. Look at the post office. I don't know, and I am a more rabid free marketer than almost anybody I know, perhaps apart from you. I've never understood why the post office and Royal Mail were split up and privatised. They were, they were a st national strategic resource. You know, the, the post office had been in existence since, I think, 1660. The Royal Mail since 1516. They'd always been run by the government, long before anybody invented socialism, because they were there as a strategic resource for the nation. And they've been handed over to imbeciles to run, who, who have you know, ruined people's lives and killed four people. Why has this been allowed to happen? You talk about imbeciles. I want to talk more again about the calibre of politicians and the people running the country over the last 10, 20 years. Again, referring to Margaret Thatcher, referring to that era, it seemed like there was a very, there was a big contrast between the characters involved in politics back then and today. And particularly when it comes to their intellectual capacity, their ideological convictions, their interest in the world around them and in issues and not just gossip and um, narcissism and their own egos. And, and I know it sounds incredibly cynical. Um, and maybe, um, please tell me if I'm being too cynical there. No, you're not. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so does it matter that um, politicians are no longer sort of intellectual in the same way. Um, do, you, do you think that's important to, to the way the, the debate runs and, and our democracy? I think it's part of the, uh, uh, of the problem. Uh, but when I used to sit in the press gallery of the House of Commons in the mid-1980s, 
looking at a Labour Party led by Kinnock and uh, a Conservative Party led by Mrs Thatcher. On the Labour side, let's start with them. You had a lot of men who'd left school at 14 and gone on a coal mine and had done serious manual work, hard work, for many years before becoming trade union reps and then getting into Parliament. And even though one might have disagreed with those people's um, politics, one respected them as people. On the Conservative side, you had a lot of people who'd fought in the war, a lot of people who'd won the military cross, decorated for serious war service. You had people, sometimes they were the same people, who'd come out and run serious businesses. And you had a lot of well-educated people. We had them, by the way, on the Labour benches as well. I mean, one of the best educated, most intelligent people I ever met as a political journalist was Dennis Healy. Um, the only man, actually, who ever got the better of Enoch Powell in the parliamentary debate, um, which is saying something. And the, they were more serious people. But you've now got, uh, as you say, a bunch of narcissists who come in, who feel that for some reason they have a divine right to rule just by getting elected, gives them that divine right. Um, many of them are not particularly well educated, they're not particularly well read. They don't seem to know any history, with one or two notable exceptions. Um, I don't know how connected they are with what some of them patronizingly call ordinary people. You know, I don't know how much, I mean, there are one or two who really are. And again, going back to the post office scandal, I'm so impressed by um, what James Arbuthnot did in that, that you know, one of his constituents came to him and said, this is a terrible injustice that's been done to me. And he took it so seriously. And I, my God, I commend him for that. He should be given an earldom for what he did, frankly, um, for that. It, it's a really admirable piece of public service. Uh, and people like him used to proliferate in the Tory party and to an extent in the Labour party. They don't proliferate now. Uh, you know, people go to university, they leave university and get a job uh, working for a Tory MP or for a Tory minister. They might get a job in the central office eventually. They might get, if they're really bright, get into the research department. And then they go and join um, uh, the candidates list and become, if they're lucky, a Tory MP. They've never done a proper job in their life, to coin a phrase. And I'm sorry, working in the Westminster Village is not a proper job. It really isn't. Going and working for a business that has to make a profit in order to keep you on the payroll that's a proper job. You know, working for people who have to produce accounts and a balance sheet every year, that's a proper job. Making something, providing something, providing a service that people actually want, that's a proper job. And I think the Conservative Party has fallen into a trap that was started by the, the Labour Party in particular, just taking people who work for the movement and making them MPs. And they need to stop that. Uh, and I, I partly blame... Uh, constituency parties, who I think made some have made some really disastrously bad choices, but of course they can only choose the people who are sent to them. So this goes back to Conservative Central Office. Dave Cameron had this thing called the A List, where he just put people on for tokenistic reasons. There weren't enough people of colour. There weren't enough women, and obviously there weren't enough idiots because he put quite a lot of those onto the candidates list as well. And he felt very good about that. It made him preen when he looked in the mirror, thought, well, I've done something for equality and everything else. I'm a great believer in equality, but I'm also a great believer in merit. And I really don't see that uh, 
the Conservative Party has paid much attention to merit in the last 20 or so years. And if it is up to its neck in something pretty smelly and unpleasant at the moment, ignoring merit is probably one of the main reasons. And by the way, I think that by focusing on merit, you actually create inequality. I mean, not everyone is the same. Of course. So I'm not against uh, uh, inequality in that sense. And just to play a little fun game. Well, I'm in favour of equality of opportunity. That's yes, what I'm of saying. Of course, yeah. Uh, if people choose not to take their opportunities, don't work hard enough, too bad. Now, along the theme of, of the last question, we are sitting in a fantastic library of biographies and history. And, and whilst you were in the other room, just before you did this interview, I was having a look around about some of the books. And I want to ask whether you think that historian leaders or people, leaders throughout history who know a lot about history, have they been impactful? Is it better to know about history? Is it, not, is it better to be ignorant of history? So I see over here we've got lots of biographies of Hitler, he was, a love, he was a big historian. He was obsessed with uh, Frederick the Great, for example. And, um, you know, he was a very well-read man. Um, someone like Stalin was more ideological, perhaps knew less about history. I don't know. But what do you think? What's your sort of answer to that question? Maybe you can think of a few fun examples. Well, I mean, you talk about Hitler. I mean, I think it's very good that our children seem almost only to study the Nazis in their school history. That's true. Um, syllabus is now because he was you know, an almost uniquely evil man. That's very bad English grammar. Of course, Stalin, Stalin and Mao were just about as evil as Hitler. Um, they weren't genocidal maniacs like him, but they were pretty evil. And I think it's quite important that children uh, are taught the capacity of um, uh, political leaders to become utterly wicked in the way that Hitler was. Um, I think it's crucial to know history, particularly if you're a statesman or have the pretensions to be a statesman. Because you need to know the mistakes your forebears have made. You know, it's like becoming a doctor and doing no training. So I didn't need to know how to make an incision. I'll just do it and I'll just play it by ear. You know, you need to know that others have been around the course before you. So someone like Neville Chamberlain's interesting. So he was Chancellor and he was a very effective domestic politician in many ways. But when it came to foreign policy, he hadn't really travelled, he wasn't that interested, or maybe you disagree with me, he wasn't particularly interested in foreign policy. And I think people accuse him of being naive in that arena. So maybe that's a good example of where you do really need to have a sort of deep knowledge of what's going on before you're able to make those decisions. I mean, Chamberlain had travelled. Chamberlain lived abroad for five years in the 1890s, and he'd been all around Europe, um, he'd been, uh, of course, he famously travelled three times in 1938 to go and see Hitler. Um, I'm a great admirer of Chamberlain. I don't know what choice Chamberlain had in 1938, because Winston Churchill, who was, a, of course, he was a great man, and we were so lucky to have Churchill in 1940 and 41 as our spokesman and mouthpiece, uh, articulating our defiance against Hitler. I mean, it's in times like that, words are almost as important as weapons. Um, Churchill, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1920s, presented five budgets, 1925 to 29. First one was a catastrophe. He put us back on the gold standard, um, which he didn't understand. But in each of those five budgets, he cut defence spending. He doesn't mention this in his war memoirs, for reasons I can't quite understand. So when Chamberlain is still Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, Lord Londonderry uh, comes to see him. Lord Londonderry, who's most noted these days for being a Nazi sympathiser, goes to see him and says, you know, we haven't really got an air force. <laughs> should we do something about this? He says, yes, Charlie, I think we probably should. And a man turns up from um, 
hawker and says, we're going to build this plane called Hurricane. Can we have some money, some seed capital? And then a man turns up from Supermarine saying, we're going to build this plane called Spitfire. Can we have a bit of money and some seed capital? And Chamberlain realizes it's quite important. Chamberlain gets no credit for this. But we started to build up first our Navy, then our Air Force, and eventually, not until 1938, our Army, because the world's becoming an infinitely more dangerous place. Here's a lesson we should be learning now, by the way, but we're not. And um, on the eve of his first visit to Germany, he met the Chamberlain met the three chiefs of the defense staff, uh, the first Sea Lord, uh, the chief of the Imperial General Staff and the um, uh, senior marshal of the RAF. And they all said to him, well, good luck on your trip to see Hitler, the prime minister. But just bear in mind, <laughs> please don't start a war because the Navy's on the China, mainly on the China station. The, um, the Air Force hasn't quite been built yet and we don't have an army. Now, I don't know how much of an idiot Chamberlain would have had to be to go to... Germany and say to Hitler, well, unless you behave immediately and do as you're told, um, we're going to start a war with you. And Hitler would have said, well, bring it on. I'll flatten you. I'll be in France by Christmas. And I'll be sending across the English Channel by Easter. And, you know, you, you tell me what you'd like me to do then. So I think Chamberlain was... Um, and Chamberlain actually knew a lot of history. When he'd been abroad for five years, he'd read... Where had he, where had he been, by the way? He'd been in, he'd been in uh, the West Indies growing sisal. Uh, and it failed. Uh, and that, that failure turned him into a really brilliant businessman. Uh, it's the story of many great businessmen who have their first thing as a failure. He lost a lot of his father's money. But he spent that time uh, sitting on, a, on an island, um, reading the Bible, Shakespeare, like you do on Desert Island Discs, but reading lots of novels, reading lots of history books. Um, and he, he, was, he never went to university, not that that really matters. But he was a largely self-educated man. Much like Hitler. Much like Hitler, but without Hitler's obsessions, thank God. I think, you know, he, he was very conscious of the war he lived through. By the time he comes to that ghastly moment in his life where he's got to deal with Hitler, he's 69. He's lived through the Great War. I mean, he was too old to fight in the Great War. His favorite cousin was Norman Chamberlain was killed in the Great War. And he was devastated by this. And it was one of the great motive forces in him not to have another war. But he was never taken in by Hitler. There are letters to his uh, sisters that he wrote in the early 30s where he says Hitler is a maniac and it's terrible that the future of the world is in this man's hands. So he always knows how bad Hitler is. He always understands that we can't be weak against him. But he does think he, he can manipulate Hitler, and he does think he, he, does, he yeah. thinks he knows Hitler in a way that he, he, he naively didn't really know Hitler. Yeah. And yeah. he believed Hitler's promises and things like that. So I think there are some criticisms that were, are legitimate. Perhaps in hindsight, it's easy to criticise anyway. Yeah, but there are criticisms. And, and at the time, I mean, um, Tom Inskip, who was one of his uh, cabinet ministers, said, you know... Um, Chamberlain went into this den of thieves in Munich like he was walking into the cult club and he didn't understand the sort of people he was dealing with. Somebody else said, well, never, never met people like that in Birmingham. Well, you know, luckily, Birmingham was not full of people like Hitler. I think that was Duff Cooper. So, yeah. so uh, just to bring us on to another politician who I think you're fascinated with who wrote a biography of Joe Chamberlain 
uh, Enoch Powell, um, talking about the calibre of politicians again. So could you imagine a, a scenario in which, let's say Enoch Powell was alive today and was in politics, and he was put up, up against the generic Tory MP? What, what are we talking about in terms of level of intellectual capacity? Where would you, how would you compare the, those two kind of figures? Well, it's, it's a difference between uh, um, Prosecco and uh, the Cuvée Winston Churchill of Paul Roger, isn't it? I mean, Enoch was a professor at the age of 25. Yeah. Uh, he was the youngest brigadier in the British Army when he joined up to fight for king and country. Um, he was, when Milton Friedman got the Nobel Prize for economics, Enoch said, I should have had a half share because I invented monetarism before he did, which is entirely true. Look at Enoch's treasury policy as a financial secretary in 1957. Um, where do you have people who are now so capable of original thought in the Conservative Party? I, I mean, look, there are one or two intellectually impressive people. I've, I've always been impressed by Michael Gove, um, although sometimes you know, others would say Michael's too clever for his own good, but I mean, Michael is a very talented person. Um, I mean, actually, even when you get clever people, they make mistakes. I mean, Quasi Quartain is one of the cleverest people in the Tory party. And I'm still, despite having discussed it with him, I'm still not entirely clear why he went along with the, the whole trust horror. Um, and I, you know, I'm really sorry he was the he was scapegoated for it. But there's no doubt Rishi's very clever as well. Rishi is clever. And um, I think it's not least that Rishi is clever that he has steadied the Conservative Party ship, uh, which was in a terrible... I mean, it was, it was you know, about to be scuttled when he took over. And he's, he's done really well, but... You know, sometimes you're so clever, you're ultra-cautious. And um, Enoch Powell famously said at the 1968 party conference, uh, and it's on the back of dust wrapper of my biography of him, too often today people are ready to tell us, this is not possible, that is not possible. I say, whatever the true interests of our country calls for is always possible. Now that's what I want a prime minister, irrespective of which party he or she is in. That's what I want him or her to, to to think and to pursue and to stick to. And if they're not prepared to have that relentless vision, that relentless determination to make things better, then they're right to be in politics. I like to think that Sunak does have that, that he's not just a technocrat. He's not just doing it because, oh, you know, it's a leap, leaping off to getting a massive presidency of a corporation in America with his green card when all this is over. I hope he's, there's a bit more to him than that. Uh, but, you know, it goes back to the point that most Conservative MPs uh, don't seem to be motivated by that. They just want a job. There was a famous clip a few years ago on Question Time where one member of the audience asked the panel, can you recite any poetry? Because I think Gove was trying to get children, school children, to, to remember poetry. And none of them could other than Peter Hitchens, who quoted Houseman, again, a famous <laughs> connection with Mr. Powell. Shot so quick, so clean an ending. That was good, lad. That was brave. There's two other uh, points I want to ask about in the interview before we end. Um, first of all is on Keir Starmer, and the second is on Reform UK, this sort of right-wing alternative stories. So on Keir, can Sir Keir be a great prime minister? Can he be, I know Keir Hardy was never prime minister, but can he be a Keir Hardy-type figure? Can he be a great man of history? I've, I know nothing against Keir Starmer. Uh, he's obviously quite a good director of public prosecutions. 
he must reconcile with his own conscience the fact that he served in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow government. Um, but uh, if he's going to be like any Labour Prime Minister we've ever had, it'll be Clement Attlee. Uh, Attlee actually also had a pretty distinguished life before he went into local politics in the 20s. Um, he'd been in the army. He was the man who was the last man, I think, off the beach at Gallipoli when uh, we evacuated the Dardanelles in 1916. So he was, uh, Attlee was a, or Major Attlee, as he was known in his early years in, in Parliament, was a, a distinguished man who'd given great public service. And um, he was a man of few words. Um, he didn't like people who were unduly flash. He recognized integrity and patriotism. That's why he liked people like Ernest Bevin, who I think it's probably, if I had to name the greatest Labour Party figure in history, it would be Ernie Bevin, who was I think, a magnificent man. So he wasn't a sheep in sheep's clothing then? No, he certainly wasn't. Um, but uh, I think probably Starmer's got more in common with Attlee. He doesn't have Wilson's shiftiness doesn't have Tony Blair's charisma. But you say he doesn't have shiftiness. Now, Keir Starmer has been sort of going back and forth on his various policies. As you rightly say, he was in the shadow cabinet under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, he sort of made promises to the left when he became elected Labour leader that he then immediately kind of turned his back on. On Brexit, he was very much you know, against Brexit. He wanted to rejoin the European Union, etc. Now he's kind of been more pragmatic. So again, it's like, is he, a sh- he is a pretty shifty guy in some ways. Well, is that shiftiness or is it, as you say, pragmatism? Attlee was something similar. Attlee's Labour Party in opposition voted against the defence estimates right up until the spring of 1939 um, and then said, yeah, they are the guilty men. We are the people who want to defend Britain. So Attlee wasn't beyond a bit of that. Um, when I think of shiftiness, I think if you read the memoirs of cabinet ministers who served with Wilson, you know, he would say one thing to one and one thing to another. He was a very duplicitous man. He was a very clever man, but really dishonest. Um, he never made the mistake that Boris Johnson made of lying when it was easy to be found out, because he's a lot cleverer than Boris Johnson. But um, uh, no, I think that Starmer has a lot in common with Attlee. And I'll tell you something I think he'll have in common with Attlee. Uh, he will, I think he will win the election. Uh, but I think if he wins one in four or five years' time, it'll be by a very narrow margin. And that'll be that. Because I think the Labour Party are going to find issues confronting them in the next four or five years, um, starting at the top with the question of national defence and national security, going down through things like migration, public services, levels of taxation, that they are going to find it almost impossible to deal with. It's quite clear they don't have the solutions. They don't have the solutions at all. No, no, they don't. They haven't got a clue what they're doing. They just want power. And they're doing... They're doing what the Labour Party did under Tony Blair from 94 to 97. It's a wildly factionalised party, as the Conservative Party is, as I make no pretense about that. But they're all behaving themselves and keeping quiet. They'll turn ugly pretty soon once they get into power, particularly when difficult decisions have to be taken. And I suspect it went, and I may be horribly wrong, but I suspect it may be a quite small majority that he's dealing with. Um, And he could have quite a rough ride. So, yeah, maybe he will win this election and win the one after it, but he won't win the one after that. And I think the one after that might not be very long in coming. I would think we might well end up with a Conservative government back in power by 
2031-2032. Ah, but will it be a conservative government or will it be a reform government or some other conservative party? There are some people who say the conservative party, if it loses in a sort of terrible extinction-level event, some other right-wing group will, will replace it, whether that's reform, whether that's something Dominic Cummings or others set up, I don't know. But what do you think the chances of there being a significant shift in British politics and the Conservative Party being sweeped from history uh, occurs? I don't think it will be swept from history because um, that's not how our electoral system works. Um, If there are a lot of reform candidates standing, as I believe they're going to be, um, I've just thought actually this is Nigel Farage's golden opportunity to win a seat in Parliament, and I'd be delighted to see him there. I think he's a fantastic piece of grit on the oyster. Uh, And uh, I've seen it mentioned he might stand in Clacton and might win there. I think that going to a hardcore Brexit seat and standing and pointing out the utter failures since 2019 could get him elected. Will many other people go into Parliament with him? No. That's just how the system works. That's how the system works. Maybe we could talk a bit about the Liberals and how they were destroyed as a mainstream force. And maybe there'll be a parallel there. Obviously, they never were completely wiped out, as we've got the Lib Dems still today. You know, there's some historical link between those two parties. But they they were slowly kind of lost power, didn't they, under um, Lloyd George? Yes. Well, of course, it was split uh, between Asquithian Liberals and Lloyd George Liberals after the uh, end of the um, Asquith coalition in 1916. And their own infighting really undid them. The Tory party seemed to have, they, they, they have the luxury of fighting in government, which is not what you want to be fighting. And when they're out of power, they think, oh gosh, we don't like this very much. And they tend to stick together and, um, and get back into power. And I think that's what they'll, they'll do this time. Um, reform, if they stand in a lot of places, will take a lot of seats. Um, the Liberal Democrats now are an interesting state. I don't think that they have, it has yet sunk into the Lib Dems just how damaged Ed Davey is. Ed Davey is spectacularly damaged by this post office scandal uh, because he showed when he was a minister he didn't have a clue how to be a minister. So why would you give him any further power? Why would you vote Lib Dems in such large numbers that Labour might be forced to ask them to come into a coalition? Well, I presume that they would do so after what happened in 2010. And, you know, I see uh, the map that our own newspaper printed of what the bound, what the seats could look like um, uh, after the next election, which I hope is a wake-up call for the Tory party. And I saw large bits of England and Scotland and Wales looking a bit yellow. I believe it when I see it. They're obviously going to win some seats. I mean, the last time I saw Davy open his mouth before the post office debacle was at his party conference, where he was talking about needing to look after men who menstruate. And I thought, how seriously do you want to be taken? You know, most men don't menstruate. In fact, I've yet to meet one who's actually admitted doing so. It got me worried. I thought, is it going to happen to me one day? You know, I've got to this great age and I've never done it. It's all going to happen at once. I don't know. I mean, it really is frightening. For a national politician, the leader of a national party, to talk drivel like that in public just because he wants to tick a few boxes and suck up to a handful of extremists what we're talking about. He must be mad. And um, uh, you know that, for some reason, didn't damage him because everyone is afraid to criticise these people. But 
um, the post office thing will damage him. It has damaged him. And, you know, he's the man who was always calling for people to resign. Every day, Ed David was calling for a Tory minister to resign because that Tory minister had done something Ed David didn't approve of. Well, okay, the next time Ed David calls for someone to resign, people are going to turn around to him and say, well, hang on, why haven't you resigned? You're the man who ignored Alan Bates. You know, you're the man who contributed to four postmasters committing suicide. You happy with that? Why haven't you resigned? Well, he's a disgrace. Alison Pearson, one of our fantastic Telegraph God columnists. Bless God bless her. She wrote a brilliant column recently, I don't know if you've read it, but about uh, uh, the failures of the Conservative Party. And she said, she, in a way, she can't wait for Labour, Labour to come in because she can finally hate the government that she didn't support um, <laughs> at one point. Um, and it's interesting, I think, uh, you know, if we think, talk about comparisons um, and a Starmer government, what it might look like, if you look over to the pond to the Biden administration and in terms of their posturing on trans issues, and the way that they've sort of degraded the institution of the White House in, in, I don't know if you've seen these embarrassing examples of bringing in some very odd um, characters into the building and, and doing all sorts of weird celebrations to do with woke issues, whether it's transgenderism or Black Lives Matter or whatever. So I imagine um, when, when and if Labour win, you will have a lot to write about and a lot to be angry about. And just, <laughs> I don't know. But you see, I mean, I, I'm a great admirer of Alison, but... Um... One thing I think she hasn't quite taken on board is that when a Conservative Party goes badly wrong, as this one has, you do get angry because you think, we thought you were better than this. We trusted you. We thought you were better than this. When the Labour Party does shocking things, you just say, well, that's what's going to happen with the Labour government. You don't get angry because it, you factor it in. It's going to happen. All you can do is say, well, I'm looking forward to the next election when I can vote again, perhaps the next time with a few more people, to get them out of office. Um, but, you know, at the start of this interview, we were, you, know, you asked me for a prediction. I, I've no idea what's going to happen. I suspect the Conservative Party is going to lose. I suspect Labour will form a, ma a majority government. But I don't think it'll be a big majority. And I think that we will be back in a real mess within weeks. Because there are without radical change, you know, without a t really upsetting people or upsetting a vocal minority of people on all sorts of issues, we're not going to get this country back in a state of sort of natural psychological health and natural political health. Uh, and the Labour Party haven't got the guts to do that any more than this Conservative Party have had the guts to do it. And that's the challenge. It's the challenge for the next Conservative opposition, whether it's led by Rishi if he stays in, and I, I'm not calling for him to be removed yet, um, uh, or whether it's somebody else who's running. That person has got to have a clear vision that actually starts looking at the rights of majorities and stops worrying about small groups of people, whether it's over the trans issue or over aspects of welfareism or uh, migration, small groups of people who get very upset and get very noisy about things, they've just got to accept the majority view. That's democracy for you. And I'm looking forward to having a Conservative party, maybe not a government yet, but a party that does that. Thank you very much, Simon Heffer, for joining us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. 
If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.